Hi, so welcome to the fake podcast. So fake means fashion for animal kingdom and environment. And we are here today to create conversation uh, with inspiring guests. And today we have one of the most powerful vegan activists. Uh, to me, is one of the best because I talked a lot to him and he always finds the perfect answer to each question I'm asking him. So I'm very excited to have him. Uh, his name is Ryuji Shua, but you probably know him as Peace by Vegan. So how are you, Ryuji? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on the show and thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. Yeah, yeah. The, thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. I'm super excited. <laughs> I feel like that was so formal. I answered <laughs> so formally. We're actually great friends. And I feel like I just answered you like we're strangers. But yeah. th thank you. I really mean it. Though. It's true. <laughs> and it's not like, like we were talking for like 30 minutes just before, you know, preparing yeah, this. No. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the podcast effect. You know, when we talk in a podcast, we feel like we need to elevate Yeah, we become strangers. Exactly. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think the best is that you introduce yourself and especially your vegan journey because that's a question we always have. So, yeah, let us know who you are, how you became vegan, why you became vegan. And then, of course, we're going to talk about activism. And, yeah, I'll let you start. Sure thing. So, <laughs> I'm Ryuji, as Jonathan said. Or Yuni. I don't know if you go by Yuni in English, but... Yuni. Oh. Okay, so I'm Ryuji, and I'm an animal rights activist slash filmmaker. So my main form of activism is I create educational content that I distribute on social media. I've done that for myself. I've also done that for other organizations such as the Safe Movements, Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. Uh, I've worked with PETA and the Dolphin Project in the past. So that's basically what I do. I try to create impactful films to support the animal rights movements. And the way this all started, it actually started when I was really in high school, if you want to go all the way back. And what happened is that back then, I had this dream, this very noble dream of wanting to be a popular kid. Because at the time, I was going through puberty. And when you go through puberty, you just want to be cool. And you want to be liked and approved of. So that was basically what was occupying my mind at the time. And back then, I was in a majority white high school. I was a nerdy Asian kid. I had very low self-esteem, and so things didn't go my way. I had really close friends that I loved. I loved my friends from high school, and I still love them. Um, but, you know, all the kids that were, quote-unquote, the cool kids, I didn't get along with them. And I didn't understand why it was that they could have fun with each other, why it was that they would have fun at parties, start dating, and why I wasn't a part of that. And that really, really frustrated me. And what happened was that through that frustration, I was incredibly lucky to discover the world of personal development. I found on YouTube some videos of people saying, hey, I used to struggle too. I used to be really socially awkward too. But guess what? If you work on yourself, if you shift your mindsets and you take different actions, you can actually change yourself. You can actually overcome that. How cool is that? And I thought to myself, that's awesome. That sounds amazing. And I wasn't skeptical about it at all at the time. And I was like, let, let me learn about this because... I basically felt like I was out of options. Through that, I watched a bunch of videos on YouTube. I read a bunch of books. I eventually attended trainings and, and stuff like that too. But that taught me a few fundamentals, ways of thinking and mindsets that I still carry with me to this day that really supported me in my journey of becoming vegan. So for example, I learned that I should always be open to being wrong about anything. I learned that, oh, what I thought about happiness, like what I thought happiness was, was completely wrong. The way that I thought people communicated was completely wrong. So that taught me, okay, well, 
I really can't be sure about anything. I should always be open-minded to being challenged and being wrong. And if I'm wrong about something, I should change in order to sync up with that or in order to apply what I learned to my life, you know, and that's what I learned. Mm. And I also learned that I should probably learn about things that I don't know about. I, I basically became aware of all the things that I didn't know. You know, that expression, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. Well, that, that became really, really clear to me. And so through that, one of the topics that I was always really weak at was history. And I thought to myself, let me read a history book. I should probably hmm. learn history. So I picked up a book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. And this book essentially changed my life. It's an incredible book that I recommend to everyone. And what Dr. Harari does in that book is he takes history and he breaks it down through big sweeping movements and ideologies that shaped history, things like religion, imperialism, the agricultural revolution. And he frames them in such a thought-provoking way that it's basically a way of thinking about history that you probably never learned in school or I never learned in school anyways. And basically he breaks it down in a way where it gets you to question everything. And around page 200 of that book, there was a short passage on the modern industrial animal agriculture industry. Oh, that was a mouthful. <laughs> but there was a passage on that. And in that passage, he described how we treat animals in animal agriculture. And he explained that the reason why people wake up and eat animal products is not because we are aware of and support what these industries do to animals, but it's just because we're going about our lives without thinking about it. We're basically being indifferent. That's the word that he used. Mm. And when I read that, I was ready to receive that information. I was open-minded to it because like I said, I was like, I can't be sure about anything. So I'm always open to learning new information. And because I was open to changing that information, when I received it, I was like, okay, I should do something about this. I can't just learn about it and, and say, oh, this is really sad. This is, you know, this sounds horrible, which is what I thought. But I was like, I can't just think that I need to do something about it. And my instinct was I should stop contributing to those industries. At the time, I didn't even know the word vegan, <laughs> funny mm. enough. I had no idea what that word was. <laughs> I had heard of vegetarians before, I guess, but vegan, I had not even heard that word. And the way I came across it is I went back to the States to start my second year of college. And I started telling my friends, hey, I, I don't eat meat anymore. I stopped, I don't eat steak, I don't eat burgers, so don't invite me for a Korean barbecue anymore. <laughs> and so one of my friends, he said, so are you vegan? Are you vegetarian? What's the deal? And I was like, uh... Let me get back to you on that. <laughs> and so he went away. I went on my computer and I typed, what's the difference between vegan and vegetarian? And the definition for veganism popped up, which was veganism is a lifestyle that seeks to, to exclude as much as possible the exploitation of non-human animals. And when I read that, I was like, okay, that makes so much sense. And that prompted me to look into all the different industries that exploit animals, not just for food, but for clothing, entertainment, research, et cetera, et cetera. And I found that every industry was just as bad as the next. All of them cause tremendous suffering to animals and all of them commodify animals and see animals as objects and machines and not sentient beings. And that's when I, you know, in my mind, I truly became vegan for the animals where I understood that, oh, animals should have the right not to be enslaved and used as property. And what we can do to fight that is at least be vegan. So that's essentially my journey. And two and a half years later, I became an activist and here we are today. Wow. That was an amazing introduction. <laughs> so actually, how, how would you define veganism? Because as you say, it's 
most of people will believe that it's probably just a diet or, or just a lifestyle, but it, it sounds like way more than that. That's a, that's a great question, actually. And the correct, the technical definition of veganism is about our actions. So it says what we don't do as vegans. As vegans, we don't buy things that come from exploiting animals. That is the technical definition of veganism. However, I don't think that that's the most important part of what it means to be vegan. To me, the most important parts, and this comes through a historical understanding, is our beliefs, the way that we see the world and the way that we see animals. And to me, what I understand is important is seeing animals as sentient beings who suffer the same as us, who want to live just like we want to live, as opposed to machines and objects that we can use for our benefits. Because when we have this shift in mindset, then of course our actions are going to align with that. We are going to buy the oat milk instead of the cow's milk when we go to the supermarkets, mm. but it's informed with an understanding that is ultimately the social change that we seek to create in the world as vegans. A lot of people, when we first become vegan, it's because we see how horribly animals are treated in, say, the animal agriculture industry. You see a behind-the-scenes video of the meat industry, and you're like, they look like they're suffering. This is horrible. I should stop contributing to that. And in the back of your mind, there's this story that by buying plant-based alternatives to animal products, you are going to create a world where animals no longer have to go through this. That's why we become vegan, right? Because we want to fight those systems. That's how, at least when you become an ethical vegan, mm. that is the mindset that I see a lot of people adopting. But if you look at history, what social scientists have shown is that when you want to create a change in society, what's important is people's beliefs and not their actions. And looking at it like that, what's important is not just our actions, but is really those beliefs of how we see animals and who they are to us. So to me, that's what's important. And now, is that in the definition of veganism? Not really. The mm. definition of veganism is just, well, we don't buy animal products. Fair enough. And that's fine. But it doesn't mean that that's the most important thing. To me, it's really those beliefs that I think we should focus on. That's what I try to focus in my own uh, personal activism. Mm. And you say earlier, when you were reading your book, um, when they were talking about animal agriculture, you had the open mind. Like you, you say, you were, uh, your mind was open to receive this information. What do you mean yeah. by that? What I mean by that is that what I found, because after I became vegan, I straight away wanted to tell everyone. And that's what a lot of us, we have this urge because we see behind the scenes of what happens to animals and we're like, I want to share this with people because the way that we experience it is as a gift. Sometimes people think that being vegan sucks and it's like, well, we really crave those animal products, but because we have such a guilty conscience, we're like, no, I, I can't do it. I must stop myself. But it's, and they think it's really hard, but it's the opposite. To me, when I became vegan, I wanted to do that. I genuinely no longer wanted to consume animal products, it seemed horrible to me. Why would I want to do something that causes suffering to animals? Mm. And becoming vegan was like a gift. It was so beautiful for me to know that I was living in alignment with my values. And more importantly, knowing that I was living in a way where I was causing as little suffering to innocent other animals as I could. It was amazing. So to me, it was a gift. And because of that, I wanted to share that gift with other people. The same as when you discover anything that's awesome. See, you discover a new TV show that you love. Hmm. You want to share that with people. You're like, you should, you got to check out this TV show. It's awesome. You're going to have so much fun watching it. 
well, that's how we feel as vegans. And, mm. <laughs> and because a lot of us suck at communicating or we haven't learned effective communication principles, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, but that's also why people think we're preachy, but that's why we want to share this with people. And what I found when I started sharing this with people is that people didn't take it very well. They didn't want to see what I was showing them. Say I was showing them a video. They're like, I don't want to watch that. Don't show me that. You're making me feel guilty. Why are you shoving your beliefs down my throat? And that's an experience that a lot of vegans go through. And because of that, that's why I talked about in my story how when I received this information, I was open-minded to that. And that's also why for a long time, my mission was I wanted to combine an understanding of living ethically with personal development concepts because I feel like to me I was just lucky that you know we as vegans we look down on people who say don't want to watch what happens to animals oh they're just people who don't care fuck those people but the thing is to me I know that I could have been that person too I was just lucky that I'd spent three years before finding about the before finding out about the information working on myself and growing such that I understood oh okay I should be open-minded to new information. Oh, okay, I should be open-minded to change. That was drilled into me for like three years and I was just really lucky to, ha to have had that mindset uh, and that's, that's why I was open-minded to it. And that's why, you know, I think that's part of why I'm very patient with people when I talk to them and they don't necessarily want to hear what I have to say or, uh, you know, that's why I know how to communicate with these people too because I'm like, yeah, I, I, really, I, I really could have been that and I completely understand that. Mm. Veganism is my favorite TV show. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite anime <laughs> so what would you say if someone come to you and he say oh my god i became vegan i want to become an activist what is the first step great question to me th this is just what helped me but i know it helped a lot of other people too and if you want to become an activist and do more for animals than just be vegan first of all that's awesome you should definitely go for it and second of all what i would say is find your local community and join them. Just join some local events. Meet people first. Because the reality is, it's very hard to do something when you're the only person in your circle doing it. Some people can do it, for sure. Some people can do that. But personally, it's very, for me at least, it was impossible for me to do anything without a support system. And for a lot of people, uh, like, I don't think we're built, or I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but I just don't think we're going to take action unless we're surrounded with other people who are taking similar actions. Mm. So that's why I think it's so important to meet community. Just find any group. It doesn't matter. Don't judge the group beforehand. Don't judge the people beforehand. Just find something and show up. You never know how it might change your life. And if you don't like it, then just never show up again. That's totally fine too. But once you join your local community, what's going to happen is that you're going to meet people. You're going to take part in some events. And through that, you're going to learn about other opportunities. And then you can take those opportunities. You can start different things with different people. And most importantly, you will find friends and a community that understand you, that want to speak up for animals the same way that you want to speak up for animals and that you can all do that together. So just do that. Just join the community and you, you'll figure something out after that. You know, there's not much to it. But that is, to me, the biggest thing that helped me. Because before I joined the community, I wanted to do something, but I, I literally did nothing for two and a half years. And after I started, uh, after I joined the community, my activism like skyrocketed. I went to so many events. Mm. I met so many people. I, I was a part of so many great opportunities. I got to travel to Japan with the Dolphin Project thanks to that. I got to work with amazing sanctuaries, with big organizations. I mean, all that came from this one decision of me deciding, okay, I don't know anyone. 
I am scared as balls to go to this event right now, but let, let me just go and figure and, and stay and get out of my comfort zone, say hi to a few people. <laughs> and because I made the decision, it made all the difference. So just join your local community. Don't judge, show up and trust the process. Yeah, it's totally true because then you realize that being an activist uh, doesn't mean going in front of a farm and screaming at them and, and, and yelling and doing only crazy things. Being an activist can be just cooking beautiful meal, uh, vegan and posting them on Instagram or um, helping animal sanctuary. Like being an activist is just mean being active. So yeah, you're right. By doing this, you can open your mind to that. And yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we all have different strengths and skills and passions. Mm. And to me, it, there's this thing that sometimes people say where they're like, oh, do anything for the animals as long as you feel good about it. I agree with that. And also I disagree with that. There's a part of me that's like, you know, for example, the co-founder of Direct Action Everywhere, he says that their motto is find your voice, find some friends and fight like hell. So find whatever it is that you want to do for animals, find people to do it with, and then go all out. And mm. I completely agree with that. The part that I will add to that is that I think that our actions should be results-oriented. So we should have a clear idea of what's the difference we want to create and be able to evaluate whether or not we're actually achieving that goal. And then it should also be informed by history somewhat. So we know what has worked in history in the past to change the world. Mm. And we do something that aligns with that. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of it, because it's so, in activism, the thing is, it's so easy to get a pat on the back because you do anything and people are like, that's awesome. I love what you're doing for animals. High five. And it's awesome. But mm. for me, for a long time, me and my friends, we really talked about what are our specific goals here? Are we achieving those goals? Is what we're doing working? We weren't very clear on that. So I think it's also important to be clear on that. But as much as you can, for example, I'm a filmmaker and that's what I love doing the most. So I try to align that with my activism, but I also try to figure out, okay, is what I'm doing effective? Does it make sense from a historical perspective? And if it doesn't make sense, I'm open to changing. So that that's what I would say on top of, you know, do whatever fits you best. So now we have to ask you the big question, what is the best <laughs> way to be a vegan activist? <laughs> that's a great question. So um, jumping off from the previous question, the best way to be an activist is going to be different for every single person because we all have different personality types, different strengths, different skills, different passions. Now, that being said, one thing that I do want to make clear is that there are so many different forms of activism, right? And we already talked about this, but just even in the more quote-unquote militant forms of activism, a lot of people see what I do and they admire that because it's very easy to love. So you make videos online, you talk to people on the streets, especially the way that I do it in a very peaceful way that seems like uh, the person is on board with what I'm saying. It, it seems like a, a two-way dialogue, like that kind of thing. It, it can seem like, oh, that's what it means to be an activist. And if you look on social media, that's the mainstream definition of what it means to be a vegan activist. If you go on YouTube and you type vegan activist, because no one searches animal rights activists for some reason, it's always vegan activist. Well, what you'll find is you'll find people having conversations with people on the streets. You'll see people giving talks, people having debates, and just people, you know, in whatever form, it's just, it's always conversational. It's always educational. Mm. But the first thing that's important to understand is that activism is not exclusively educational. I do educational activism because I love it and it aligns with my strengths. But doing a march, doing a disruption, doing an investigation on, into a farm, doing a mass open rescue, all these forms of activism are not necessarily educational or at least the main motive is not educational it might be political mm -hmm. you know i don't know 
but it's still a form of activism. And all those things are all really, really important. So, uh, you know, what's the best form? Well, I don't know. I think that probably organizing things with a lot of people is the most important form of activism, just because historically, from my understanding, that's what has played a bigger, like the biggest part in creating social change. So from that perspective, you could say that, well, maybe the best thing to do would be to become an organizer mm. uh, or take part in, in mass actions and things like that that can really do things like bring animal agriculture to courts, challenge the political system that's in place, like stuff like that. Um, but again, see, I don't do that because I'm not cut out to do that. It doesn't mm. align with my interests at all. I, I don't really understand it. And I try my best to study it as best I can. And I want to, but what I want to do is I want to support that through filmmaking. But anyways, um, so, so that's the first thing I would say is that there's so many different things you can do for animals and you really have to, uh, really be aware of that and not put something on a pedestal just because it makes you feel good. I mm. guess that's the main point is that it's not because if a form of activism feels better that it's necessarily better. Sure. Um, but as for me personally, I, you know, I focus a lot on educational activism and, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's pretty good. Like basically there's no really best way, uh, just do it your way and try to, to be patient and, and do it right. Yeah. And be open-minded to experiencing new things all the time. Mm. And listen, I, I remember when we talk, it's always what comes at the end is that you need to listen who is in front of you. Because you need... Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for educational activism, let's say, and this is something that we all need because whoever you are, as a vegan, as someone who cares about animals, uh, <laughs> I can't speak, animals, animals, <laughs> as someone who cares about animals, as someone who is an activist for animals, you're going to have moments in your life where you will have to talk about it with people, whether it's through an, activi an activism event or maybe it's just your friends and family. You have to talk about them. So to me, one thing that I try to do is I spend a lot of time trying to understand communication skills because I used to be so bad at communicating. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand that. And I try to share that because that's what helped me in my activism. And I know that it helps a lot of people in their day-to-day -day lives. And yeah, like you said, I think that's, for example, listening. You know, if you read any book on communication, one of the first lessons they'll teach you is you have to listen. Yeah. It's so important to listen to what the other person um, is saying. And this is what I found after observing how other people communicate with people about these topics is that so often, or I don't know if it's so often, because I haven't seen that that many people, but I've seen a lot of people talk about this and especially on social media and so forth. What I found is that people do it with a lack of empathy. So mm. essentially what I found is that we have this thing in our minds, right? Because what you got to understand is that everyone in the world, most people, we're just thinking about ourselves, our experience. You know, it's that saying like you go to a dance class and you'll be really awkward and you'll be insecure because you're like, everyone's looking at me, everyone's judging me and I'll feel that way too. Mm. But what we have to realize is that every single person in the dance class also feels insecure and they're all just thinking about themselves. Mm -hmm. No one has the bandwidth to even care about what you look like. No, like no one cares just because they care too much about themselves. So as an extension of that, when you go about the world and you're talking to people, most people, they're just thinking about themselves. And when you talk to them, they're thinking, how does what you're saying relate to me? What do I think about this? Do I have an experience that is similar to that or something along those lines? Mm -hmm. And what's crucially important to understand is that we're like that too. And the way that this translates is that when we talk to people about animal rights or veganism, all we're thinking is, I want to tell you about animal rights. I want you to go vegan. 
I want to talk about this because I think this is important and I think that everyone should know about this. Therefore, I'm going to talk about this with you. And we're not thinking at all, what is this other person thinking? What are they feeling? What's going through their minds? And just that, in my experience, encapsulates so many problems that we have communicating with people. Just because if we took the time to understand what people are thinking, how they're feeling, how they're experiencing what we're telling them, how they're thinking about the ideas that we're trying to communicate with them, how are they not feeling heard, we will be able to communicate so much more effectively. And that's why I try to stress the importance of listening, which that's really all it is. Mm. Is just, and I thought about this the other day. And I thought about this and I, I, it, this phrase came to me that empathy is a superpower. And what I meant by that is that when you train yourself to listen, because it, it's a skill, at first it's very difficult because you're just thinking about yourself. So I remember when I first started trying to listen to people, I would kind of listen to their words, but I didn't really understand what they were fully saying. Now, the way that I experience listening on a day where I'm really on, like I'm, I'm not like this all the time, to be clear. Like I'm, I'm far from perfect. I'm still learning a lot. Mm. But on a day where I'm really able to listen and empathize with what someone is saying, the way that I experience a conversation is I'm talking to them and I'm experiencing the entire thing through their perspective. It's almost like Ryuji myself, <laughs> I don't even exist. So they say something to me and the way that I think about it and experience it is, why did they say that? How are they feeling as they're saying that? And when I receive that in my brain, I think to myself, okay, because this is how they're feeling, maybe I can say this. And when I say it, I'm thinking, how will this make this, them feel? And when they receive it, I observe their reaction and I'm like, oh, okay, this is how they received it. Maybe it didn't work, maybe it worked. I'm like, oh, okay, they felt attacked there. But I try to experience it from their point of view. I never try to think and experience like, oh, I feel offended now. I don't know what to say now. Mm -hmm. It's like, I really try to take myself out of it and I try to understand it from their perspective. So I, ideally, the way this would go if you would be perfect at this, is for the other person, it would feel like they're having an internal monologue because everything makes so much sense to them in their minds. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's what empathy and listening is. It, in my experience, at least, that's how I understand it now. And what I found is that when you do this to the best of your ability, conversations typically go so well mm -hmm. because you're able to address everything that's going on in their minds. That's why and I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you finally feel heard? Do you feel like I listen to you? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that reminds me of a video you did. Uh, I don't remember if it was on Instagram or TikTok uh, or Facebook, just so people know that they can find you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a video about, um, let's say you want to invite someone to... Uh, vacation to somewhere you won't tell them just buy the ticket you will tell them how good it will be to uh, you probably know what video i'm talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no no i know i know and the frame behind that is you want to think what's in it for them yeah so often when we talk to people we're just thinking what's in it for me? what do i want to get out of this conversation what do i want out of this exchange and what you should realize is that in life almost always thinking about what the other person wants and how you can give it to them 
is almost always going to be the more beneficial thing to do. So I'll give you an example, right? If I want people to watch a video that I made, say I made a video on YouTube, well, what should I do? What most people would do, and this is what I did for a long time, is I would just put the video, say, on my Instagram story, and I'm like, I made a new video. Go check out my new video. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, I want people to watch my video. So I'm going to ask people, watch my video. Mm. The problem with that is that no one cares that I put out a new video. This is one of the biggest wake-up calls, by the way, when you start making content for social media, say you want to become a YouTuber, Mm -hmm. is that you think to yourself, at least all my friends and family are going to watch my video. And it's like, no, they they, they literally don't. Like, (laughs) like, literally no one cares. Or maybe I have terrible friends. I don't know. But it's like, okay, your mom is going to watch your videos, okay, maybe. But apart from that, a lot of people that you expect are going to watch your stuff, they just don't. It's it's like, it's it's this weird wake-up call where you're like, oh, okay, people don't actually care that much about my work. And it's not that they care, it's just that you haven't given them a reason to care. So if I make a new YouTube video and I want people to watch it, what I have to do is I have to think in my mind, why would my audience want to watch this video? And then I present it through that. And I don't even say, check out my new video. So for example, I'm gonna say, do you struggle with talking about animal rights with people? Do you feel this, this, and that? If you do, I just made a resource for you. Swipe up to check it out. And I frame the entire thing through what are you going to get out of it? I don't even talk about, I want views on my videos. I want views on my videos. I want people to listen to my podcast, but I don't even say that. I'm just saying, this is the benefit that you might want to get out of this. If you think you will win, I'm just restarting my camera. If you think you will win by watching this video or listening to this podcast, then this is how you can check it out. And that consistently does much, much better. So that's why getting back to your example, in the video that I made, I said, if you want to invite someone to go on a vacation with you, it's better that you show them the destination, how awesome the destination is going to be. Mm. And then you tell them, hey, here's how you get there. The reason I said that is because when we talk about veganism with people, we tend to be like, focus on the the going vegan part. We're like, Mm. you have to go vegan now. And we talk about why won't you go vegan? That's kind of like the question. But what I found is that I used to do that. And the problem was that I didn't really address the root issue. Like, why would they even care about this in the first place? Mm. Like, that's not clear. So to me, I find it much more effective if I clarify, what is the problem? Why might someone even want to care or consider becoming vegan? Was because what we do to animals is so bad because we treat them as commodities. Do you think animals are commodities? Well, if you don't think animals are commodities, then consider that these industries commodify these animals. Maybe this is something you want to care about. Once we're on the same page about that, and once we're on the same page about what we do to animals is morally wrong, then we can move on to the solution, which is, well, one of the solutions is you become vegan, then you become an activist. Then it makes sense. It's presented as the solution to a problem and not just, I want you to do this. It's presented as, this is the solution to a problem that you care about. And the analogy was, the way that most people talk about veganism and the way that I did it for a long time is, It's as if I'm trying to sell you a plane ticket because I want to go on vacation with you. In my head, I'm like, this is awesome. I think this destination is awesome. Hey, Jonathan, do you want to buy this plane ticket? And you're like, I don't want to buy this. Like, why are you talking to me about this plane ticket? I don't want want to buy it. And I'm like, no, 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 you have to buy it. You have to buy it. You have to buy it. And I keep insisting. And that's what it's like. Go vegan, go vegan, go vegan. Mm. That's the plane ticket. What I should do is I should figure out what's in it for you. So maybe, and you know, to go even deeper than I did in the video, it would be say, if I know that you love to try new restaurants, you love exploring new places. Well, I would show you, hey, this city has so many awesome top-rated vegan restaurants. They're amazing. This is what people are saying about them. They're saying you have to see this place before you die. You have to eat here before you die. Then you're like, that's so awesome. 
I want to go there. And then I'm like, hey, well, cool. Maybe buy this plane ticket now. <laughs> you know, and that will probably be a lot more effective mm. than just trying to sell you the plane ticket directly. So that, you know, and that's part of being empathetic too, because listening and understanding the other person is that you want to know that people always want something. And if you can align what you're saying with what people want, you will always have really, really great outcomes. Yeah, I totally agree. But why it is so difficult with the family and the close friends? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know the exact reason why. Mm. What I do know, though, is that for a lot of people, it is harder to communicate with close friends, uh, especially family, mm. right? Even in self-help circles and personal development circles, people say that, hey, if you want a great way to get triggered, go spend a weekend with your parents or your family. Hmm. And for whatever reason, the people who are closest to us is just so hard to be honest and open and vulnerable with them, right? Like hmm. there are people that I'm really close to that I feel kind of uncomfortable crying in front of or something like that. So, but I'll go to a vigil and cry and I don't really care, right? So it, it's kind of weird. I, I don't know the technical reason why. I mean, I couldn't make something up like, oh, there's a lot of past baggage and ego and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know what the reason is. But I do know it's a reality. And maybe what's more important than understanding why it happens is understanding what we can do about that. Mm. And to me, what I found is that, um, well, th there are a couple ways that we can approach this. One way is becoming more confident at your skills in terms of how to communicate with people. One thing that I found after talking to a lot of people who have had issues with their friends, families, schoolmates, things like that, is that they're the only people with whom they interact about animal rights. So they'll say, my family and friends make fun of me all the time. I don't know what to tell them. And if I ask them, do you talk to anyone else about this stuff? And they're like, no, they're the only people I talk to. Well, if that's the case, you're already shooting yourself in the foot, hmm. right? Because it's almost like, it's almost like, imagine you have an important boxing match, right? And you're part of this competition, but you never practice outside the main boxing match. It makes no sense. Of course, you're going to lose. It's, it's not going to go well. Whether the person is your friend, like it doesn't even matter. Like it's just not going to go well. So one thing you can do is learn effective communication skills and practice them on strangers, on people with whom they're not necessarily those high stakes of like with your family, it might be that you fail once and it's gone forever. The opportunity is gone forever. I mean, you could be able to recover it, but that's how it can feel. So on top of all of what I just said, there can be a lot of pressure, right? Where you're like, you feel the need to get it right. Well, if you practice on a lot of strangers, you might not feel the need to get it right as strongly because it's easy to let go. Like, okay, just some stranger on the streets told me to F off. Okay, that's fine. I can Next person, let's just move on. And you practice the skills. What I found is that before I practiced on strangers, I had a really tough time talking to my friends and family, like especially my close family, say my extended family, stuff like that. I felt really uncomfortable. I didn't really know what to say. I didn't know how to approach the topics. I didn't know what questions to ask them. I had no idea. But after I went out and did this for about a year where I went on the streets very regularly, talked to a bunch of people, learned from those experiences and found what works with people on the streets, I realized, oh, talking to my family is actually the same thing. It's emotionally a little harder, but mm. I should do the same thing. And because I practiced those skills, I could do them. Like, you know, when you practice a skill, say you learn how to play an instrument and you learn a song at first, it's really awkward. And then you get a little better. Then you get a little better. And then at some point it's like automatic. You can play a song almost without thinking about it. When you get the skills to a point where you can almost do it without thinking about it, it's a lot easier to actually apply them with people that it, it might otherwise be emotionally difficult. Cause it's almost like you're, you're kind of going through the motions. So that's one thing that I, I felt helped me a lot. Um, and the other thing, other 
end of the spectrum, so to speak, because that's kind of like a you're brute forcing your way through it. The other part is just understanding how to have a healthier relationship with the people who are close to you. Because really, if we're going to be honest, the fact that we find it so difficult to talk about topics that are important and dear to our hearts with the people who are supposed to love us the most, really that shows that our relationship with them is kind of dysfunctional. Mm. If we're going to be honest, right? Because in theory, when you love someone and you have a good relationship with them, you should be able to talk about anything. That's what family and friends are supposed to be. But if we can't do that, it kind of shows, okay, maybe we actually don't have the healthiest relationship. And because veganism or animal rights is a topic that has the potential to bring up a lot of tension, is just shining a spotlight on a problem that's already there. Similar to how, Mm -hmm. if you're having problems talking to people about animal rights or veganism in general, well, the problem is not about the topic. It's just shining a spotlight on the fact that, hey, maybe you should up your communication skills. Maybe you should learn how to communicate better. It's just shining a spotlight on that. So really, the, the real core solution is to mend the relationships with the people in your life. Understand how to release trauma. You know, understand how to communicate better with, with them. I'm not a relationships expert, so I can't really tell you how to do that. But I would say that you know, those are two things that might help you if it is difficult for you to talk to your friends and family. And how do you... What would you say to people? Because I, I saw you uh, on the street talking to stranger, and I see how how cool you are and how easy it is for you, and s- you're so comfortable with every topic you talk about. Uh, it's impossible. It's almost impossible for me to believe that you were shy before. So how would you help someone who is super shy who wants to be activist, but he doesn't know how to overcome this? Sure, that's a great question. So. If you feel like the goal of communicating effectively is unattainable, the first step is to realize that this is truly a skill, like any other skill in the world. Mm. And if you want to be confident that you learned a skill, well, there's something that you learned. You learned how to speak a language that's much harder than learning how to talk about veganism. Maybe you'll, you'll learn how to walk as a kid. You learn how to drive a car. You learn how to ride a bike. There's so many things that you learned that, you know, before I rode a bike, it, it felt impossible for me. The first time I got on the bike, I was like, how do you balance on this thing? I can't, I can't do this. But I practiced, I practiced, I practiced, and then I got it, right? And so if you learned anything in your life, understand that communicating effectively is a skill just like that. It's literally no different. It just, we just don't think about it like that. I don't know why, but in our society, we just think, oh, some people are just cool and popular and they know how to talk to people and some other people don't. No, it's not true. Mm -hmm. It's literally just a skill. You learn some concepts, you practice, you get good at it. It's boring. That's just how it is. So first, Mm -hmm. realize that. And the second thing is, acknowledge that you suck right now. It's okay to be bad at something. We somehow get socialized in our world that being bad at something is bad. Like That's the whole grade system in schools. In schools, we get punished for making mistakes because we're supposed to get perfect grades. And if we make a mistake, we get punished for it by having a bad grade. Well, okay, fine. The problem with that is that now as adults, we think, oh, if I make a mistake, then I suck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's not productive because you learn through failures. Mm -hmm. So it's okay to be bad at something. And if you are bad at communicating effectively, just acknowledge, okay, I suck at this. And I did this like, uh, you know, what was it like five, five, six, seven years ago when I really started taking this seriously, I acknowledged, okay, I suck at this, but... If I work on it, if I learn new concepts, I try to apply them, it's going to be real awkward at first. Think when you learn to ride a bicycle, the first time you get on, you're going to fall. It's going to be real awkward. This is the same exact thing. Once you learn a communication concept and you try to apply it, 
so awkward. It's going to be weird. It's going to feel weird in your body. But you got to go through that. You only learn through going through uncomfortable um, experiences. That's how you learn anything. So realize that you suck. Acknowledge it. Be okay with it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's mm. like, honestly nothing wrong with being bad at something. It's it's completely natural. Like, what do you expect to like be born being good at communicating? That's ridiculous. <laughs> why why would that be the case? It's normal that you suck. So acknowledge that, and then every step of the way, push yourself, put yourself in uncomfortable situations, and the one thing that's going to save you, and this is what's really changed my entire life, is put it in your mind that I suck now, but I am going to learn this, and every single day think about it, learn new things that are going to help you get there and just keep that mindset that I can do it and I will do it at any cost necessary. And then even if you improve 0.1% every single day, one day you'll look back and you'll be like, I can't believe that was ever me. So that's that's my advice in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, and thinking about it like a game, like you told me once uh, to kill the final boss, you need to reach all the level first. You cannot. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to play Pokemon as a kid. Mm. I I played so many hours of that, <laughs> and actually, it's so funny because the first time I played Pokemon, it was Sapphire, so that was Gen 3. Mm. and I didn't know because the way I got the game is my grandmother sent it to me from Japan, so the whole game was in Japanese, <laughs> and. I couldn't read Japanese at the time. And so I didn't know that you could save the game. So every time I would start the game, and when I stopped playing, I would turn off the, my Game Boy, and the next day, I would start the game over again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't understand that you could accumulate your efforts. Mm. But then one day, a friend of mine came to my house and was like, wait, what are you doing? Because he had Pokemon that were like level 60. And I was like, how do you get Pokemon to level 60? I can't even get to level 10. Like, how did you do this? And he's like, you can save your game, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned I could save my game. But the thing is, a lot of people, they want to do this fancy stuff. And this is exactly what happened, right? Mm. Because a lot of people, they see people who communicate really, really well. And they're like, I could never do that. That's like me seeing my friends go through the final boss in the game, which is the Elite Four. And I'm like, how did you do that? Like, I could never see myself doing that. Well, no, it's, it's not that. It's just that I didn't train. Like, what do you expect? I have my level five starter Pokemon and I expect to go against the hardest people in the game. It doesn't make sense. I have to go through the entire journey of the game, go through all these ups and downs, winning battles, losing battles, getting gym badges, <laughs> completing these side quests, having all my Pokemon faints, go to the Pokemon Center, reviving them, all this. All, and by the way, in our event, I asked the question, is Pokemon ethical? I don't know, because you make them battle. <laughs> and actually, I realized, well, the main difference between the world of Pokemon and what we do to animals in our world is that... Pokemon actually consent to battling for us. And that's actually addressed many times in the anime where, for example, Ash, he will capture Pokemon and he'll ask them, do you want to come along in the journey? If you don't want to come along, that's fine. I'll, I'll let you be. Mm. Or all the, all the Pokemon, they want to fight in battles. So it's kind of a weird thing, but it's a different world, so I'm not going to comment on that. Mm. But anyways, the point is you go through all these ups and downs. You go through all these struggles. You train and you train and you train. You level up. And then finally, finally, after 50 hours, you can challenge the Elite Four and beat them. This is the exact same thing. When you have never even thought about how to communicate effectively, you will not be good at it. You will just not be good at it. But if you train and you beat other trainers and you get to level 60, then maybe you can challenge the Elite Four. <laughs> so that's so be a Pokemon, our Pokemon trainer. Here. <laughs> being an activist is basically being a Pokemon trainer. Exactly. And you can actually just throw Pokeballs at people sometimes. Like that, that works too. <laughs> 
Actually, is there like the worst thing to do? Like someone tell you, okay, I just became an activist. Would you tell him, okay, but don't ever do that? Like, is there anything that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the the worst thing, in my opinion, I mean, I don't really know because in order to determine what is the worst thing, we would have to know. Like, I'm getting really technical, but <laughs> this is how I think. So in my mind, I'm like, what's the worst thing? Well, in order to know that, I would have to know what is the possibilities of all the different things that we could do, which is an infinite list of things. Yeah. And out of that, what would be the worst thing in most situations? So I, I don't know. I didn't do that experiment. <laughs> but what I will say is that I think that what we shouldn't do and what I try to not do personally is have a bad intention, have uh, some sort of ill intent. To me, activism is something that you do from a good intention. You have the intention of changing the world for the better. That's why a lot of activism groups are love-based. For example, the SAVE movement, they have a love-based approach. I have a love-based approach to communicating with people. It doesn't mean that everything should be love-based, but I guess that the best way I could put it is everything should be non-violent in a way where, you know, I don't think that we should seek out to harm others. Um, you could argue, you could you can argue against that. So that's partly just my opinion where you could say that the end justifies the means. Mm. I don't personally agree with that. Ultimately, the way that I would determine that is actually thinking what has happened in history. If some major change happened in history through people making some massive sacrifices and doing horrible things, then maybe I might consider it. There's always sacrifice involved in any social movement. There's always ugly things. There's always been uh, violence involved and stuff like that. Um, but to me, I don't ever want to do something that comes from a place of violence. So for example, you look at one of the most militant groups, direct action everywhere. Mm. They'll do things where they'll take a hundred activists, walk into a farm, walk inside, take out animals. It's a very con confrontational type of action, but they still remain nonviolent the entire time. Mm. And they remain love-based. And if people shove them, people are verbally violent against them. They will hold up peace signs and flowers and they, they, won't, they won't fight back. They, they want to throw that violence back. Mm. So, th and that's really where I learned it. And that's why I think w whether it's you communicate with people, whether you're doing a march, our intention should be you know, a good intention. And um, I think that's how we can avoid doing th the worst thing, so to speak. But I feel like even if you come with a good intention, people can take it wrong because they feel guilty. So they feel judged because the way they judge themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think to, to deal with that, there are only two things you can do. First off is what this is what I personally do, because one way of looking at it is that, and this is true, not everyone is going to be affected by what you tell them. Mm. So in the same way that you're not going to be friends with everyone in the world. There, look, there's some people that I, I just can't be friends with. I don't know why we just don't get along. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's completely natural. It would be weird if you got along with everyone. It would be super, super weird. So in the same way, it would be super, super weird if it, like you just point to people and they, they're like just change because you point to them. And it's like, go vegan, go vegan. Go, and like mm -hmm. everyone's just like changing and become an activist. That would be super weird. So that's not the case. So one way of looking at this is realizing that not everyone is meant to be affected by you. And that's totally fine. Just accept it. And if someone, you talk to them with a good intention, honestly, you apply your best communication skills that you have at that point. Uh, you know, you do the best that you can and they don't, listen to you, well, what are you going to do about that? You can't really control that. So that's one way of looking at it. And mm. always retain that in the back of your mind. At the end of the day, you can't ever control what other people do. You can only control your own actions. That's why, to me, a successful conversation with someone about animal rights is not how did they take it, how did they change as a result of my actions, is did I do the best that I could do? 
And if I pushed myself, I did the best that I could do. Because for me, it's, it's not easy. So talk, like I push myself every time I talk to people. And as long as I push myself and I tried my best, that's a success because I can control that. And the, the point, the reason why I'm building this up is because I think on one hand, you say, okay, well, not everyone's going to be affected by me. But on the other hand, I always ask myself, what happened here? Why did this happen? And I try to understand it. If someone got really defensive, I think to myself, why did they get defensive? How was this for them? And I replay the entire thing and I try the best that I can to put myself in their position. I imagine, I, I try, and the, the specific way that I do it is I try to think, who is that person? And if they're a friend, I have a good idea. If they're a stranger, I have no idea. But I think to myself, okay, maybe there's someone who never heard about animal rights before. They care about animals, but you know, I don't know. I try to understand what is their mindset and then I play to myself all the things that I said and I try to feel, how would I feel if this was being said to me, if I was being reacted to this way? And I try to understand what is the point at which this went south? Maybe there is no point. Maybe it's, maybe, because some people are going to say, yeah, yeah, but like it's not always your fault. Well, duh, it's not always your fault. Mm -hmm. Okay, but so what? That doesn't help whatsoever. It doesn't help at all to just say, it's on this person. This person just didn't want to listen. That helps no one. Mm. So to me, I always think to myself, what did I do that caused this? And what could I have done differently in order to not cause this? And then I come up with a few solutions. Oh, maybe next time when they say something, I'm not just going to say a question straight away. I'm going to acknowledge what they said. Oh, that's a great point you bring up. Okay, so you're so this is what you're saying and repeat it back to them. I don't know. That's an example. And I'll come up with things I can try next time. And then next time, I'll try it. And you basically have to do this like a million times. And then, you know, you, you can, you can build your, your, your skills that way. But yeah, I mean, you know, don't take things personally and just ask yourself, how could I have created this? And if you do that, then you'll have, you'll still have those situations, but you'll have them less and less and less. But more importantly than that, they'll all become very valuable learning experiences for you. No matter what you learn from the situation, always just learn from it. And that's the best you can do. And I feel like one of the main skill that you need to be able to go in that place, it's patience. How, how can you learn patience? For, for me, it's still very difficult to be patient. Yeah, that's a great question. So <laughs> patience, I think, again, I, I feel like so many things in life are kind of similar, right? But patience in the same way as learning communication, I think is a skill. One of the mindsets that I had really early on when I started personal development is I understood that most things in life is a skill that you can develop. And that really helped me because I understood that whatever it is that I want to do, if I have a vision of where I want to go, then all I got to do is move towards that. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, if I take, like, it's like anything you can look at as like this giant mountain, right? So patience, for example, is the top of this mountain. And if you look at it from the bottom, it's like, it looks so far away. But any mountain if you start walking, you'll eventually get to the top. You just got to start walking and put one foot in front of the other. So anything is like that. So patience, you just see it up on that mountain and you just start, start taking steps towards it. Now, as for specific steps that you can take, one thing that really helped me was understanding how, to, this is going to sound really weird for people who have never really thought about this, but <laughs> is understanding how to release my past trauma. So basically what I realized is that when you are in a situation where an event happens, it could be anything. And when you have an emotional reaction that's disproportionate to the reality, what that means is that you're quote unquote triggered. All right, so I'll explain what that means. So an example of this, uh, 
is, for example, say you talk to someone about a topic that doesn't matter. Um, say your favorite TV show and they say that TV show sucks, right? It's just a random example. Mm. And then when they say that, you feel super emotional. You, you get angry. You're like, what are you telling me that this sucks? Like, what, what is wrong with you? Right? And I'm sure we can all relate to something like that. Just use your imagination. It could be, it could be anything. Mm. Well, the reality is that emotional reaction is disproportionate to what happened. Like they just stated their opinion. Why do I have to get so up in arms about this? It, it doesn't make sense. But really what's happening is that whatever they said triggered this thing where something happened way back in my life when I was a kid, or it could be any time, but most, a lot of it is when you're a kid, where maybe someone when I was a kid told me that I was wrong. I wanted to voice my opinion. My parents told me, shut up, you're wrong. When you're a kid, that experience is traumatic because mm. it's really an attack on your survival. When you're a kid, you don't understand that you can survive autonomously. So you think to yourself, man, if my parents are saying this, it means they don't love me, so I might die. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you take that part of yourself that expressed him or herself or whatever, and you shove it down, you suppress it, and you're like, this is not me. I don't want to be this person anymore. That's why when... You, when I was a teenager, I remember being so ashamed of telling my friends if I had a crush on someone. I don't know if you had that too, but like if I liked a girl, I, I couldn't tell anyone. Yeah. I felt so embarrassed. <laughs> and basically that happens because at some point, you might say, I like this person, and then people make fun of you. They're like, oh, Ryu, like Ryuji and whoever sitting in a tree, <laughs> and they make fun of you, and that feels horrible. You feel ashamed, and so then you don't want to tell people when you have a crush on someone. Mm. Um, but, the, but the reality is, uh, that emotional reaction is so disproportionate. So what it's telling you is that you experienced something in the past that was traumatic and that's bringing that up. And basically what I found is that, for me at least, a lot of the reasons why I got so emotional talking to people about animal rights is because just those topics being very inflammatory, they just brought up all this, all this past trauma. And uh, around, I guess, two and a half years ago, I was really lucky to learn about this for the first time and I learned how to release past trauma. And, and I, I kind of started going through that process and learning the tools to go through those processes. And after I did that, I found that I was like 10 times more patient with people where they said things. And all of a sudden, I just, it, it didn't emotionally affect me. Um, so, so really, if you want kind of like a, a very practical thing to take away is, uh, you know, to me, being patient is not the skill of someone says something and then you come up with this technique to remain patient. Like, cause people think sometimes that like people leave comments on my videos where they're, uh, Oh, I can't believe they said that. I would have been screaming inside. I bet you were screaming inside. Good for you for staying so calm. Mm. But for me, it's not like that is they say that. And I'm not screaming inside. Like I just don't feel it. So what you have to, so that's what I would urge uh, you to aim for is aim for this place where things outside of you don't emotionally affect you because you got to realize that the way that we grew up in our society, everyone around us tells us that our emotions should be controlled by everything that's around us. Th that's basically what consumerism is in a nutshell. You feel bad. You want to feel better. Buy something. <laughs> that's what, that's kind of what the whole thing is, right? Mm -hmm. And any problem you have, you just buy something. You're supposed to feel good when you go see a movie, when you go buy a new vacation, when you buy a new car, all this external stuff is supposed to make you happy. And then it's also belief that, hey, if someone said something mean to you, it's normal for you to feel bad about that. I mean, it's normal for you to feel bad about that, but the point is we learn that if something bad happens, we feel sad. If something good happens, we feel good. 
And the way that we control our emotions is we control the external circumstances so that good things happen to us and we get good stuff and then we're happy. That's harmful because now you're in a situation where you talk to someone and you're so conditioned to this way of thinking where your, your emotions are so at the whim of everything that's around you that it's so easy for someone to poke at your buttons. Mm. Right? So another facet of this is learning how to detach from that, understand that your good emotions, your emotional stability has to come from you. And a good way to do that, for example, is to get like one thing that really helped me with that is actually getting into meditation. With meditation, you learn how to observe your feelings and you don't identify with how you feel anymore. And then when someone says something, you might even like feel something, but then you can become an observer of that. So that's another thing that could help as well. But, but really the bigger picture is grow as a person so that you learn to not be affected emotionally, positively or negatively by things outside yourself. They're just things that happen and everything is okay. And when you do feel things, understand how to process those emotions in a healthy way and learn how to let go of past trauma. It's a long-term plan. This is not going to happen overnight. I, I want to stress because a lot of people listening to this, they might be like, well, okay, well, what do I do now? And the thing, like, I don't know what you can do now. I, like, I don't know of a thing that you can do right now and tomorrow you're going to feel patient. I don't know that. All I know is this, this long-term journey that you take and that me personally, I started this journey like, like seven years ago now. So, you know, I'm gonna, if you haven't started this journey, well, it might take you seven years until you, you get it, but that's fine. Again, it's okay to be, to be bad at it. All that matters is that you have a goal, you understand that it's possible, and you keep walking towards it, and you'll be at the top of the mountain one day. I think it is difficult also because you know that when you um, miss the chance to open the eyes of the person in front of you, uh, this person will eat more meat, uh, will drink more dairy, so it's going to create more suffering, and so you take maybe a little bit of this guilt yeah, no, I totally understand that. And actually, one thing that really helped me with that is understanding the insignificance of one person. So on one hand, we tell people one person can make a difference. That's why we become vegan. Because by not contributing to those industries, we start believing this story that this is how we're going to change the world. Well, the reality is, when we think about it like this, we're almost thinking, like the analogy here is, for example, Netflix replaced Blockbuster. So we think when there are better products for a cheaper price, then people move towards that. That's why people are like, oh, there's plant-based products. The problem is that being vegan and animal rights is not a consumer issue. It's a social justice issue. It's more akin to things like the, the women's suffrage movement or the anti-slavery movement. It, like, it, it's just, th that's just what it is. We want rights for non-human animals. Mm. And when you see it like that, you understand that, yes, it's important for us to rise up as people, one person can make a difference. Absolutely, 100% one person can make a difference. Mm. But at the same time, the way that animals are no longer going to suffer is not going to be by us convincing each and every one person on the planet to become vegan. Mm. That would be, th that would take forever and it would be impossible. It's, it's not going to happen. But thankfully, that is, that's not how this change is going to happen. No social change has ever happened like this. Think about it like this. We abolish slavery. People are still racist. Mm. There's still like okay, there's still institutionalized slavery and there's still a lot of problems with racism. But thinking about like about it like that, what we call animal liberation is not going to happen through us convincing people to go vegan. That, that's just not how it's going to happen. It's going to be a big enough portion of the population coming together and forcing change upon the system. I don't know how exactly this is going to look like. 
and no one really knows because you don't really know what's going to happen like what's going to happen before it happens but if you look at groups like direct action ever i keep talking about them because what i love about them is that they base their actions on history they look at what has worked in the past they look at what the best research says on social change and then they go out and apply that to the cause of animal rights they have a presentation where they talk about how we're going to achieve uh, animal liberation in one generation. Mm. And it doesn't involve getting everyone to go vegan. It just involves in getting enough people together to take uh, action together. That's why it's also so important to join your local community. Mm. And when there are big actions, take part in them because those, like, those are the actions that are gonna actually move things forward. And as long as we have more and more people participating in those and you are participating in those, that's what's gonna change the world. So ultimately you talk to one person, they don't care. Look, it doesn't matter as much as you probably think it, it matters mm. in the long run. In the short term, yeah, they are going to contribute to suffering, and that really sucks. But in the long term, as for our vision, it doesn't matter nearly as much as you think. Mm. I feel like being an activist is like being a salesman. Like, I mean, a salesperson. You just try to make people buy into veganism, and if they don't want to buy, it's okay. Just learn why this sale didn't work and try with someone else. So you can become an amazing salesman just like ryuji <laughs> yeah and i mean that, that's like that's like life too like all all of life is communicating your ideas to other people and getting people to do what you want them to do uh, that, that's kind of like anything you want to do in life mm. you got to be able to have this skill you know sales has this really bad reputation yeah. but if you look at really great salespeople, they talk about how well you know, the sales has a bad rep, but that's because so many people are bad at selling. It's the same reason why animal rights activists have a bad rep, because a lot of people suck at communicating. A lot of salespeople suck at communicating. A lot of activists suck at communicating. It's, it's the same thing. Mm. <laughs> but great salespeople, they root for the person. They have a product that they believe in that they think is great, and they generally try to understand the person in front of me. What are their pain points? What do they struggle with? And how can my product help them? And if it's a good fit, all they do as a salesperson is they help illuminate the fact that this is a problem for this person. This is what it's going to cost them. And if you invest in this product that I have, it's going to solve your problem and it's going to be a win for you in the long term. And it has to be real. Mm. And what a great salesperson does is they just shed a spotlight on that really, really effectively. Mm. And that's why, they, like, you know, if you have a problem and I tell you this is going to solve your problem and if you understand it's going to solve your problem, then you're going to, you're, you're going to want it. And that's what great salespeople do. And that's what I try to do when I talk to people because when I became vegan, I wanted to become vegan. So I don't want to force people to change against their will. I want to get people to a point where they're like, this makes so much sense. I never thought about this. And yeah, I think this is horrible. I don't think animals are commodities. Like I don't want to take part in this. I, I, want, to, I want to help end this. Mm. I want to get them to that point. And then all I have to do is like, okay, this is what you do. And then they just do it. All right, that's like the ideal. Um, but really that's, in, in my opinion, that's how a, a lot of life is. And mm. uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a valuable skill to learn that I recommend everyone yeah. <laughs> look into. <laughs> yeah, like you say, it's a skill. So uh, you can take positivity everywhere. Even if someone, you felt that they were hypocrite or they get mad at you, uh, you should actually learn from this. So, and thanks him, because thanks to this person who was mean to you, yeah. you will be able to understand better uh, the situation and to yeah rectify. always be learning mm. always be learning from everything it helps a lot <laughs> actually we're almost at the end of this podcast uh i had a question if someone uh that is non-vegan for some reason listen to this podcast all the way till now uh, you have two minutes to convince him to be vegan what would you say 
Well, I would say, you know, being vegan is for people who care, for people who think of themselves as compassionate people who care about things like justice, kindness, compassion. If you think that animals are sentient beings, or not that you think, but if you understand that, because that's not really a debatable fact. I mean, animals are sentient beings. They're different from us, but they feel pain. They suffer. They want to live just like us. That's what evolution implanted in all living sentient animals. The reason why we feel fear, the reason why we suffer is so we run away from things that diminish our chances of survival and reproduction. This is not, emotions are not at all unique to humans. It's just literally a product of evolution. So all animals have this. If you understand that and you believe that they should have the right to freedom, the right to life, to, to basically be themselves and do what they want to do, then I would urge you to seriously think about what we do to animals and not just look into the industries that exploit them because I promise you that the meat industry, the dairy industry, the egg industry, all the industries that use animals, wool, down, silk, leather, any way in which animals are being used, they suffer a lot more than you probably think. Mm. But going deeper than the horror, because all these standard practices are legal. This is all legal stuff. In my videos, sometimes I show graphic footage. I only show legal stuff, legal standard practice. And people still, they, they still think this is the worst of the worst. No, this is legal standard practice. So it's worse than you think. It was way, way worse than I think. I don't, I don't even think that we can fully comprehend how bad it is. But beyond that, I would urge you to really think about, okay, animal agriculture and using animals is something that we did forever, but doesn't mean that it's ethical. Is it because we've done something forever that it necessarily makes it morally right? Mm. There are other things that we've done that we've done for a long time that we no longer consider immoral mm. for good reasons. So maybe this is the case as well. And when you look at it from the animal's point of view and you think about, you know, you think about the term animal farming and it sounds like this wonderful thing. You picture a farmer in a field with animals. But if you look at it from the animal's perspective, the victim's perspective, what is animal agriculture? Okay, we're breeding animals into existence with the intention of using their bodies and then killing them when it's no longer profitable to keep them alive. Either we make them fat, we kill them, and we make them fat as fast as possible. So chickens, it's like 42 days. Pigs, it's like six months. Or we use their bodies for what we want. We get as many eggs out of them as we can. We get as much milk as we can out of them. And then when they no longer produce as much milk or eggs, we just kill them because why would we keep them alive? A perfect example of this is there's this farmer who had a farm that looked really nice, by the way. And, you know, there was a field and everything. And he's the type of farmer that maybe the chickens, instead of producing 300 eggs per year, they produce slightly less, like 100. I don't know. It's, it's still like, I don't know, as an example, right? So it might not be as much as we can get out of them. But what he said is, well, after a few years, we have to send them off to be processed, which means killed, because they can, quote unquote, no longer pay their rent. Mm. So what that shows you is that these industries inherently see animals as machines. And really the idea that they care about animals, if you look at it from their perspective, is ridiculous. Mm. Like, how, how is it that a system that is designed to kill you cares about you? That, that's like saying, oh, in our school, we care about our students. Mm. At the end, we kill them all, but we care about them. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense, right? And that leads to hypocrisies. Like in a slaughterhouse, you see a worker punching an animal and you think that's abuse. It's wrong to punch them. But 
slitting their throats and killing them, that's somehow not abuse because the idea is that it's necessary to kill them. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, it's not. We don't have to kill animals to survive. As human beings, we have no need for animal products. And as a world is doing so much harm to our ecosystems, the environments, et cetera, et cetera. So there's really, we, we literally don't have to do it. Mm. So that being the case, how do we justify this? Mm-hmm. I think there was more than two minutes, but. <laughs> yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> Actually, I would like to add something to that. If someone of uh, get a little upset and say, no, of course they love the animals. Uh, they just don't have any solutions. Uh, I will invite you to go check the website Refarmed. Um, it's uh, it's an amazing organization that just started. They take any um, farm and they switch them to animal sanctuaries. And it's possible and they help uh, them to make this transition. They're still going to make money. They have many different options to help them to still make money with that. So there is solution. So go check it out. Refarmed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and to add to that, actually, so some people think that vegans inherently hate farmers mm. and really they're misconstruing our message and for sure some vegans hate farmers and some vegans say all farmers are evil all farmers cannot love animals etc some some people say that i don't think that corresponds to reality mm. so i don't say that but for example even when i say when we look at it from the animal's perspective they're being exploited and killed against their will people say well are you saying that farmers don't care about their animals I know someone who's a farmer and they're a great person and they care about their animals. And I'm like, I, I never said that. And I will never say that because it's just not true. I have personally met farmers who are amazing people. They're so kind to me. They're such nice people. But the thing is, it's not because you're a nice person that your actions are necessarily ethical, right? Think of an example. Parents hurt their children sometimes. They emotionally hurt their children sometimes. It doesn't mean they don't, like, we're not saying, like, you don't love your children, but you can love your children and do things that hurt your children, whether intentional or not. Maybe you think you don't have a choice, whatever it is, but that's possible. So what we're saying is, from the animal's perspective, what we do to them is an injustice. Look, there's some, are there farmers who are bad people? For sure. And... We also have to make a distinction between, say, people who work in factory farms and slaughterhouses and, say, cattle ranchers in Texas, for example, right? So people who work in farms and slaughterhouses, like big industrial farms, a lot of those people, they don't want to be there either. It's a horrible job to be at. A lot of, they don't have a choice to be there. There are so many scandals around this, so many human rights violations in those industries with, you can, you can look into this, it's not really the topic of what we're talking about, but there, there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And... In that situation, you know, are we going to say those people hate animals? I, I don't really know. How relevant is this? I don't really know. Mm. But in the case of, say, a cattle rancher in the United States where you look at their farm and it's like this big open field and you have cows who are there, well, okay, great. That's clearly a very different situation. And clearly in their minds, they love what they do. I know, okay, my friend Tommy... He's the co-founder of Rowdy Girl Sanctuary, but he used to be a cow rancher for many years. Mm. And back then, he loved what he was doing. He thought, this is a great thing what I'm doing, and I care about my animals. And in many ways, they do care about animals more than the average person on the street. So, for example, if he saw a deer who was trapped in barbed wire, he would do anything he could to help that deer. Mm. How many people would see that and just drive by without helping that deer? So many people. Mm. 
right? So he would actually help that deer. So he really cared. And he, you know, he would go out and help his animals when it was snowing and he, he would do all sorts of things so they would have the best lives possible. That being the case, at the end of the day, he still sold them for profit and they still got killed. That part is still an injustice from their point of view. Mm. And that's really what we're saying. And he acknowledges that today. And he acknowledges that, hey, I was a person who I did feel like I cared, but really at the end of the day, I, I realize now that I don't have to do this anymore. And he acknowledged that, for example, when he took his animals and he brought them to the sale barn, he would drop them off and they would look at him and look at him as if he had betrayed them. And he felt, he felt horrible doing that. Right. So I would never say that Tommy was a horrible person, that he is a horrible person, but it doesn't change the fact that, okay, from the animal's perspective, the, the animals are still getting killed. It's not because you're a good person that the animals are getting less killed, that they can sense more to what we're doing to them. Has, those things are completely unrelated. So that's one thing that I think, uh, you know, would benefit us if we made very, very clear. Right. I have still a thousand of questions I would like to ask you, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you go. <laughs> but uh, I know that um, all the questions I have, uh, I always find solutions in your videos, in your podcast. I know you are very accessible. So if I have a question, I can also directly send uh, you a message and you will answer to that question. So what I'm trying to say here is, if someone have another question or if someone want to learn a little more about how to be an effective uh, vegan activist, where they can find you? Yeah, so the best way to get in touch with me is to email me at peacebyvegan at gmail.com. My inbox on Instagram, like, I don't, I don't always check it and sometimes there are a lot of messages so I miss stuff. So email me at peacebyvegan at gmail.com. Um, but otherwise, you can find me on every platform at peacebyvegan. And you can check out my podcast. It's called The Animal Advocate Podcast. You can find it everywhere or you can find it on peacebyvegan.com forward slash podcast. You can also send a question there. But yeah, just remember Peace by Vegan. You'll find me, get in touch. And uh, yeah, however I can help you, I'd love to help you out. Thank you so much. So that was the fake podcast, Fashion for Animal Kingdom and Environment. And thank you, Ryuji, aka Peace by Vegan for being a part of it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you.